Sherry is presented by the writers and illustrators of the future. They've been providing a means for new and budding writers to have a chance for the creative efforts to be seen and acknowledged. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, it's nice meeting you via phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. How's everything um, in your end of the world? Oh, we're all fine here in uh, San Bernardino. Uh, sunny day, the cats and dogs are all just napping, basically. Uh, so, yeah, but, uh, everything's uh, everything's satisfactory. Yeah, my cat is uh, just at eight, and she's sleeping. It, I think she's at her best when she's sleeping. <laughs> That's what cats are best at, sleep. Sometimes, of course, they wake up and think, good Lord, is it 2 o'clock? I'm supposed to be sleeping over on the windowsill now, and they rush over to get that done. I know. The funniest thing is when she sticks her head out. She's the, she is like a little, for a two-year-old cat, she's like a little old lady. As soon as someone walks by my balcony, she jumps up and runs to the window. <laughs> just, just the shadow of a person. I mean, yeah. usually it's my neighbor or the mailman or somebody like that. But yeah, she has she to run like, and look. Yeah, one of those little old ladies that always knows what everything is going on in the neighborhood. Yeah. You know, the rattling of the curtains. Well, this is the rattling of the blinds. Yeah. With a little furry a detective face would want instead to, of the little old lady. <laughs> yeah, a detective would want to talk to her. Uh, oh, yes. She knows the feel of the neighborhood very well. <laughs> <laughs> That's why um, there was a series of books about, I can't remember the name of the author, but um, the the pets, the, there was a cat, two dogs, a horse, and they were the <laughs> ones who knew everything and did all the, they were, they, and um, she would get involved, the, the owner would get involved, they called her mom. And 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 they, she would do the wrong thing, and she would send one of the dogs to pull her uh, pants leg or something to get her out of harm's way. That sounds entirely plausible. Yeah, yeah. It's so cute. I love that the that the animals are a hundred percent smarter than the humans. <laughs> yeah, that's not the case here. Our cats and dogs do their best, but they're kind of dumb. In fact, we spent. Uh, I think, I think we spent four hours last night till about two a.m. at an emergency vet office because one of our dogs snorted a uh, foxtail, little weed seed thing, and a doctor had to uh, put him under anesthesia and somehow pull the foxtail out of his nose. And I think you know. I would know better than to shove foxtails up my nose. Uh, maybe, maybe he knows better now. How old is your dog? Oh, uh, I don't know exactly. Um, probably a couple of years. Uh, he, he and his sister crawled under our fence one day, and while we were trying to figure out where they belonged, we of course had to feed them. And after a while, we realized, you know what? I think, I think we own them. 
Yeah, they got you. They adopted you. Can I ask yeah, you a uh, really weird question? Do your animals ever inspire any of your writing? The cats have. Um, we had a one cat, Toby, who uh, his back legs were stunted and virtually not there. Uh, you know, somebody said, if, who wants this cat? It's, it's you know, it's crippled. Well, we'll take it. We'll take it. And he would he would hike his whole body up in the air and run on his two front legs. Uh, Weird-looking sight. It'd scare you if you didn't know what it was. Um, but he kind of uh, inspired uh, a bit in one of my books. Um, so yeah, they they do drift in, uh, you know, along with. Cars breaking down and uh, dogs inhaling foxtails and uh, every other... Your next book. <laughs> yeah, goofy thing that happens in your life. They all find their way into your stories one way or another. So your next book is going to have a foxtail in it. It might very well. It was a vivid experience. Uh, and, of course, it's with COVID, you don't wait in the little waiting room you wait out by your car and they call you on your phone and say we're ready for you now come in and so there's a whole bunch of people out in the parking lot with uh ailing animals and uh it was weirdly sociable we all you know you're out there sitting for hours and everybody gets talking and comparing notes about uh what's wrong with this or that cat or dog and uh Comparing notes about local vets and uh, weirdly sociable sort of uh, evening it was. I was thinking it could be a you could do it as a play. The set, the stage set would be the parking lot, and the characters would all be carrying cat carriers or walking dogs, and uh, you know, comparing notes. Uh, one guy was very upset because his dog was dying. Uh, another couple had brought a cat badly injured to be euthanized. Other oh. people had, you know, relatively minor problems with their animals. But uh, it was, um, it, it it really would have made a, a, a decent play. Are you going to write one? Unlikely, really. <laughs> but <laughs> the cat no, park, thought... no, the pet parking lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I've, I've, I might put it in a story sometime, but I've never uh, been inclined toward you know plays or screenplays. Uh, like people will say, you know, screenplays pay a whole lot more than novels, assuming they sell. Um, why don't you try writing a screenplay sometime, Powers? And I think, well, I think people that write screenplays grew up paying intense attention to movies. I grew up paying intense, intense attention to books. Um, I, don't, I don't think I could uh, switch lanes very readily. 
it's a different kind of writing. I, it, it's very, it's very technical kind of writing, and it's very. I know it's always exacting. Day. <laughs> yeah, it's like if you're good at painting, doesn't mean you're automatically going to be good at sculpture. Yeah, exactly. I actually, um, I tried both. I've tried screenplays and plays. I'm much better play. I do write plays. It's an innate ability. It's very different than writing a novel or a play. When I do pay attention to a movie, technically, I notice a lot of effects that work beautifully on screen that would be very time-consuming to try to describe in prose. Uh, I think, you know, that needed to be visual. That wouldn't work on a page. Yeah, I mean, think about um, something like um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the sequence where he's riding the bicycle was at a place, and they're like, um, I, William Goldman, who wrote it, it was a novelist as well as a screenwriter, but he even said, he said, you know, all I wrote was a sequence with bicycle. They came up with all that other stuff. Sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think he said, I think Goldman said, I wrote a novel and I got $3,000 for it. I wrote a screenplay and I got $300,000 for it. Exactly. Um, it's kind of a no-brainer. Uh, but I think of the scene, for example, in Terminator 2, uh, when the bad liquid metal cop uh, pursuing Schwarzenegger um, and Sarah Connor he simply flows through a set of bars, a barred door, because he's liquid metal. He can do that. Um, but the gun he was carrying got caught between the bars, and he had to look back and kind of twist it vertical so it would fit through the bars. And I thought, that was a neat effect, but I don't know how you'd do that writing it in prose. Exactly. It would take too long. It was such a momentary effect on screen so that it worked beautifully. But in a book, you'd have to have described it so long that the reader would think, oh, who cares about his damn gun? Get on with it. And also, if you think about things like montages. Yes. I, when you're reading a novel and it gets really flowery about like the scenery and every flower and all that, it kind of gets a little boring. But when you're watching a montage showing yeah. Paris and every part of Paris and how beautiful it is, and it's in the golden hour, so it's all gold and gorgeous and every. And it I mean, can you be can't 10 write seconds. that. <laughs> yes, yeah, and I, it's I, in I, just a few minutes. A, yeah. yeah, a director can simply pan a camera across like 45 degrees of Hong Kong, Budapest, Paris, and we get everything. We can, wow, wow, that's, that's incredibly colorful, interesting, look at that. Uh, and it was about 10 seconds worth of film. And he conveyed just wheelbarrowfuls of uh, color and detail. But yeah, in a, in a book, <laughs> you'd have to take three or four pages to convey all that, and no reader would get to the fourth page of it. Yeah, because it would be, it's just, it's too monotonous to do verbally, you know, yeah. with words. 
Yeah, the um, trick is to break up the details, the color, and sprinkle them in as if by accident among dialogue and actions. Uh, Raymond really Chandler. Good. Yeah, like that, like Raymond Chandler. He was really good at, like, showing you L.A. of the 40s. Yes. But interspersing it with the dialogue, of either monologue or dialogue of the character, so it's not just, well, the buildings were like this, and there, this one right. was ramshackle, and this one was beautiful, and all that. And yeah. It's just, <laughs> yeah, I've I've read uh, a good bit of advice from Irene Radford. She said, if especially in a science fiction or fantasy story where you're dealing with something very alien to the reader's experience, not simply Los Angeles or you know a freeway. She said, when you have to convey a whole lot of details about a thing, whether it's an alien government, an alien environment, uh, a remote historical situation, have it be broken and need fixing. And then the fixing of the thing conveys all the details, but they're not extraneous because they're what the characters are uh, hands-on dealing with. And so the reader doesn't notice that, incidentally, uh, they've picked up a very thorough description of whatever the thing is, and they don't notice it because it was all part of the plot and the action, which I always thought was very good advice. Yeah, it's excellent advice. I I think that, um, well, like, even to add another layer, like uh, a mystery, uh, people foreshadow. They they lay the clues out, or they lay the misdirection out within their yeah. prose, within the dialogue, within the description, and it's all there if you go back over it. That is just the first time I realized that I was I was much <laughs> older. I mean, I started reading mysteries when I was like little girl, and um, and I think I saw. Yeah, it was. I, I think I saw somebody that was a mystery writer. I think it was one of the cousins who did the Ellery Queen books because I was absolutely crazy about the TV series with Jim Hutton. And oh, yeah. they produced that. And he, uh, he was talking about that in the Ellery Queen books that sometimes it was really difficult to uh, put the misdirection in some parts of it. And I'm like, misdirection? What's he talking about? I think it was about ten, <laughs> and it was just it, it, learning that it's whoa! I didn't know that they did that. That's amazing. That's how you don't figure out a mystery. <laughs> yeah, I remember the first time I became aware of that kind of thing was uh, I was a little kid reading a Superman comic book, and in the comic book, Superman had been exposed to red kryptonite, which had unpredictable effects. He might go bald, he might lose his memory, uh, you know, he might develop the ability to, uh, I don't know, walk through walls. Um, but it was, it was always unpredictable, and people said, Jeepers, Superman, you got exposed to red kryptonite. What effect has it had on you? And he said, I have temporarily lost all my superpowers. And so Lex Luthor, hearing that, decided to go on a crime spree, and Superman flew up and, using all his superpowers, captured Luther. And Luther says, 
I thought you said you lost all your superpowers because of the red kryptonite. And no, I didn't. Well, what effect did it have? And Superman says, uh, I grew a sixth finger on each hand. And I flipped back to the beginning of the comic book story and looked at the pictures, and I saw that in every picture, Superman he had, had a, sixth, a finger. sixth finger. And I thought, my God, the writers knew in advance what they were going to reveal later in the story. Who knew? I thought they just made it up as they went along, but here's evidence that they had the story in mind all along, and they were dropping clues, which later you could go back and pick up on. I thought, wow. Boy, it would have been cooler if Superman, Superman said, I lied. <laughs> well, he did say that. He did. I lied. It was my sixth finger. Uh, it, it wasn't my superpowers at all. Um but that was a revelation to me. Also, it was a revelation when I learned that real good pool players with each shot not only intend to sink one of the balls, but leave the remaining balls in an advantageous arrangement for the next shot. Wow, they're thinking one step ahead. They're not just thinking of getting this thing of the moment done but of leaving things prepared for the for the challenge of the next moment huh i found that out because my dad was a really good pool player and he showed it to me <laughs> ah see you're way ahead of me yeah so you you knew it i'm sure long before i figured it out because yeah, um, um, i asked him he he wasn't a pole shark. He wasn't Willie, what's his name, Willie, famous pole player, a very famous, and he was, like, really great, and I can't think of his last name. This is one of the things about aging. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, um, he goes, I'm not him, but let me tell you, and he showed me the way uh, our neighbor shot he actually copied exactly the way this man shot. And then he shot the way he shot a pool ball. And then he says, now look at the balls. Look, see how the angle is and see how they're all lined up for me to keep going. And it, that yes. was one shot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, but you always find out, you know, probably all kinds of Activities turn out to have subtleties that you know you don't you don't become aware of till you uh, actually look closely. Yeah, I know. But that was so. But when you're when you want to be a writer and you love certain books like foreshadowing in uh, science fiction and fantasy or misdirection and mysteries, and you don't know about it, and you find out about it, you're like, oh, okay, that complicates. That complicates me doing it. Um. <laughs> well, yes. Uh, like I always figure that uh, for a writer, um, you need to reread books that affect you powerfully. Because the first time you're just a passenger, like somebody on a Disneyland ride built it into the little car and zooming around all the curves, you think, wow, that was great. But the second or third or tenth time you read the book, you can look off to the side and notice how it was set up. You say, ah, look at this. 
See, he was setting up that effect that doesn't explode until three chapters later. So I, I think he, uh, it's essential to reread stuff a lot uh, oh, yeah. so that you can have the, the leisure that. to kind of lean out of the car and see how the I-beams are riveted together to take the stresses. Did you, uh, I don't know if you've read the Harry Potter books, but um, did you realize the misdirection and the foreshadowing layer upon you know, layer have, upon layer when you first read it? I, you know, I, I have not read them. I, I've heard they are real good. Um, I should read them. Uh, people have told me I'd love them. I mean, uh, I love that kind of thing. Uh I don't know. I reread the Narnia books all the time, which are very good, by the way, if you haven't read them in recent <laughs> years. I love going back to a book from childhood, like, um, this is going to sound really corny, but when I was a little girl, I loved Little Women. And because I loved it oh, so yeah. much, my mom got me the sequels, which was uh, Little Men and Joe's Boys. And yes, I remember those. And I really loved it, but then when I reread it, I still loved it. But I realized how complex it was. It to me as a child, it was just this really cool, fun story, and I was in love with Joe, and I wanted to be Joe, and all this stuff. That's all I yeah. thought of. But when I was reading it, she was such a layered writer, and I never got it. I would never have seen it as a little girl. <laughs> well, yeah, that happens. Uh, the best books, you can read them every 10 years, say, and every time you're going to pick up a whole lot more because you've mm -hmm. got a lot more experience under your belt. And uh, and so you have a ever-increasing regard for the writer, respect for the writer. Um, there's some books I'm afraid to reread because I loved them as a kid, and I'm afraid they won't hold up. Edgar Rice Burroughs' The Moon Man. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> that was a great book, The Moon Man. It was. Uh, the first, the, well, his first books, my I, my dad loved them, so I read all of the books. The first books were really good. Toward the end, he wasn't as good. I'm sorry, he really wasn't. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, But I think the trick is keep getting booster shots, like uh, with... I don't know, A.E. Van Vogt, Lee Brackett, uh, C.L. Moore, Lovecraft. Uh, I've kept rereading them over the years, and so they ha there's, there hasn't been that long gap so that, I, you know, flaws in them might be too obvious. But I can I can. Did you, uh, did you read Slam? A.E. Van Vogt's yeah. Slam? Oh, I yeah. love that book. That was the first science fiction book I ever read. Oh, yeah. Van Vogt's a lot of fun. World of Null A and uh, uh, Voyage of the Space Beagle. Uh, yeah, yeah. Van Vogt's uh, great fun. Uh, I always hope people it, still read uh, Van Vogt, Paul Anderson, um, Eric Frank Russell, um, a lot of uh, Henry Kuttner. Uh, Henry Kuttner is a hero of mine. Um I bet your dad read all those. Um, uh, yeah, he did. <laughs> and I, 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 I just hope newcomers to the field 
don't neglect those. I mean, they could say, well, those were before my time, but they were before my time too. I mean, you know, Slan was published well before I was ever born. Uh, that shouldn't be a hindrance. I love books that were written way before I was born. I mean, yeah. most of the books I love was written before. My fa- One of my top favorite books is The Great Gatsby. <laughs> Oh, sure. That was yeah. written in the 20s. Um, I, my parents weren't born when that book was written. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think there is, maybe I'm imagining it, but I think there is a prejudice uh, against older books. Um, I remember somebody said a while ago, I hear Frank Herbert's Dune is very good in spite of having been published some years ago. And I think, what do you mean? Oh, my God. Uh, you, really? You think, you think literature is always improving so that the books published this year are better than the books published 20 years ago, which in turn were better than the books published 20 years before that. No. Uh, if anything, no. I, I always I always think, if anything, we're in a bit of a decline. Well, it's also funny because um, do you remember in the 90s there was this uh, a lot of Jane Austen books started becoming movies and, and TV shows. Yes. Like like yeah. a whole slew of them. And I know, I love this, I don't know uh, if it's true, but Emma Thompson, who is a very good comedic actress and comedian, said that a studio executive said that uh, this Jane Austen chick, she really knows how to write. We should get her in to write a movie for us, too. <laughs> well, she certainly didn't know how to write. Uh yeah, I love the Colin Firth. I don't know if that Jennifer was a joke Ely. or if it really happened, but I believe it, it could it have be, really it happened. It may be apocrypha, yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, it does sort of reflect what I think is an attitude. Uh, but I did love the Colin Firth, Jennifer Ely, uh, Pride and Prejudice. Oh, yeah. We watch yes. that all the time. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, she, she, it's really well and done. And the, the uh, Sense and Sensibility. Uh, yep, Emma Thompson. <laughs> Emma Thompson again. That's right. And she even wrote it, I believe. Uh, yep. I mean, she got an Oscar. Helped out, helped out Jane Austen to that extent. Did you? I, but well, yeah, you're not uh, a big movie fan, but when she got her Oscar, she read a, it as she she said she had a letter from Jane Austen, and th- uh-huh. this is her acceptance speech from Jane. And she read the whole, this whole, <laughs> in Jane's voice as Jane. It was the funniest. Aha. <laughs> yeah, she she is real good, uh, Emma Thompson. I think of her yeah. in uh, that um, As You Like It, uh, the, yeah. Yeah. directed by Kenneth Branagh. In fact, Kenneth Branagh's Henry V is the best ever. Really? Um, Better than Olivier? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I have to say. <laughs> Um, I, you can't say that to British people because uh, they have a patriotic uh, loyalty to the Olivier version, uh, largely, I think, because it came out during World War II. The Branoff was better. I, I Don't tell I anybody think, I Well, said. I love both actors. I love both actors. So um, I actually thought one of the movies that – uh, Olivier was Pantor. He actually, because I'm Jewish and I have family that was like the character in um, the Neil Diamond movie. It's um, it's about a Jewish family, and he falls oh, in love with uh, 
Jazz singer. The jazz Thank singer. you. Of course. I can't of believe course. I couldn't think of that name. Anyway, uh-huh. Olivia um, was trashed as the uh, old rabbi, um, old cantor, um, yeah. and said that he he was. And, but really, he did an excellent job because he sounded just like some of my relatives, and he he <laughs> did it. Exa- he acted just like an old Jewish man. He was. He did. He it, he had to have researched the heck out of it. He did a brilliant job, and he was panned. He said he was over the top. I go, no, none of you know Jewish people. He was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen that, but I love the original Al Jolson. Of course, uh, his historical importance colors it a bit, but uh, Neil Diamond, huh? Huh. Neil Diamond to... actually was very good. He act- They panned him, too, and he never did another movie, and I think it's a shame because he did a very good job. Even Lucy Arnaz, who's a professional actress like Olivier, Olivier and Lucy Arnaz both said, uh, said that the pans of uh, Neil Diamond were completely unfair. Um, uh-huh. It was just not – he was really good. Um, and I it's, – it's like sometimes you see some uh, singer that does an acting job really that are, should never have done it. I don't know who talked them into it, but they shouldn't have done it. But Neil's not one of them. Ah, okay. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll have to check it out. Um, yeah, definitely a good movie. But, yeah, I thought when I watched that movie, and my grandparents are still alive and my great uncles, and I'm like, he's perfect. He's doing the, – that's the real thing. He's right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Olivia was great, certainly, yeah. Uh, he was. <laughs> yeah. But, no, I'm just saying, but, I mean, it's all but, taste. It's all taste. You, didn't, you, you prefer uh, Kenneth, and I think Kenneth is a really – I thought he did a really good job on well, Murder on the Urn Express. Especially, and, uh, especially the St. Crispin's Day speech. Oh, yeah. My wife's always in tears at the very start of it uh, from, you know – What's he that wishes so, my cousin Westmoreland? Oh, no, my cousin, wish not one man more. My wife's already in tears at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love Shakespeare. I do. I th- I, and um, I like that Kenneth will play anything, like Olivier did. Yeah, he, yeah He'll true. take whatever part, he, as long as it's a well-written part. Uh, and and uh, they do, like... Kenneth did played Americans. Olivier played Americans. Um, you know, just because you're British, <laughs> actually, they do I, better it, playing Americans than we do playing British. Um, to be honest. Yeah, definitely. It, it's weird. You'll see, uh, you know, an American character in a movie, and then afterward, you see an interview and you hear the accent, and you realize, oh, they're British, but they uh-huh. were completely uh, Russell Crowe, for example. Uh, Completely convincing as Americans, and you're right; it doesn't work the other way. When when no. Americans try to be British, it, it, it's often just horrible. Well, I mean, it's really funny. I had um, Hugh Laurie uh, did House as an American, sure, and but I had seen him in Sense of Sensibility and um, uh, uh, Wooster and He's Wooster exactly. Yeah, he was and all kinds. Of, I knew he was British, and this one girl at my work, was, I, 
my father and I both told uh, her that he's not American. And she says, of course he's American. Yeah. Give to him. And yeah. I think that's called good acting. She never believed it. <laughs> when he went up to accept his Emmy in-house and he talked normal as a British person, <laughs> that's when she finally believed me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very recently, Queen's Gambit, I forget the name of the actress, um, but she was completely convincing as an American. Uh, and again, you see the interviews and you think, oh, okay, huh, wow, well done. Lucy Lawless is from New Zealand, and she does a perfect California-American accent. Yeah. As Zena. People didn't know that she was from New Zealand. But all this, uh, there is a couple times the the Kiwi kind of popped out a little bit. Not very much, but the editors didn't get it. Um, but, uh, you know, she does a perfect accent. She, it, it, yeah. it, 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 there's a lot of people like that. It's really cool. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently, uh, Dick Van Dyke wasn't. It didn't do a very good Cockney accent in uh, no. Mary Poppins, though I didn't mind because it's Dick Van Dyke. He's doing Dick Van Dyke. It's Dick Van Dyke. Um, He's brilliant. I suppose the criticism was was that, of course, I'm you know not any expert on Cockney accents, so whatever he was doing, I just thought, okay, fine. Um, well, but most we people that saw that all. as a child, so. Exactly. Exactly. We're you're uncritical. not thinking. Oh, is his accent accurate? You're not. You're just thinking. Oh, he's so funny. Oh, look at him. Yeah, he's dancing. Yeah. Isn't he great? But uh, another problem is um, British and American writers writing dialogue across the gap. Um, like Ian Fleming, who I love, um, when he would write American gangster dialogue, I think he took pains to you know research what American gangsters talked like, but it comes out sounding just like a music hall comedy. Guys and Dolls. I, and I think, okay, it sounds like Guys and Dolls, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, of course, Damon Runyon was doing that on purpose. Oh, yeah. Um, a great movie, by the way. I love Guys and Dolls. It is. I love that. Uh, one of my favorite musicals. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I always give money to Salvation Army guys at Christmas um, out of respect for Sister Sarah Brown. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I always am careful when I'm writing dialogue for British characters not to try to be British, but just to try not to... Sound to American. I can be aware, yeah, try not to sound overtly American. Yeah, that's that's that is a, a challenge, especially when you're crossing genres or you're yeah. uh, you're you're writing something that is complicated. Yeah, I've I've run into that too. Um, I, I actually I I my little sneak is that I I have a lot of British friends in Australian and 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 New Zealand, and I, if it if it takes place there, I would say send it to them. Does that sound okay? Um. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I've noticed people, um, uh, for, uh, British friends or even out-of-state friends who get California talk wrong. Um, oh, yeah. They'll write about 
driving down the PCH. I think, no, it's PCH. There's no the in front of it. Yeah. Uh, And I've had British people uh, tell me. Or the Route 66. No, it's Route 66. Do you ever call other routes the? It's Route 66. (laughs) Yeah. And I've had British people tell me, it's. you don't say it's the Green Park. It says that on a map, but in talking, it's Green Park. Also, Mm -hmm. somebody corrected me. They said, Powers, you can't say in London you walked three blocks. They don't. They don't call it blocks. I think, oh, well, why don't they? It's a natural word for that particular configuration of streets. Well, never mind, Powers. Just don't. They don't do it. Okay. The things you write about a uh, population you're not really familiar with, which is to be read by people in that population, <laughs> and you're always running the risk of innocently saying something. They go, nobody ever says that, Powers. You know. You, uh, even I've, I've written stories set in San Francisco, and they'll correct me about the ways to refer to freeways. I said, well, you guys aren't that far away. It, it's that different? And yeah, Powers, it's that different. Come on, you sound like a Angelino here when you're writing San Francisco. <laughs> I think it's funny. I know. I just, it's, it's really interesting. It's also like um, the... Uh, the way an American who writes a, about staying at a place in Britain, and I've seen this in fiction. And it, it's okay if it's a it's a autobiography or memoir. That's fine. Sure. It's nonfiction. But in fiction, they say I rented out this apartment. No, no, ha. it's a flat. Ha. It's a flat. I, I put it in yeah. the trunk of a car. No, it's the yeah. boot. <laughs> and the windshield. It isn't a windshield. <clears throat> it's a windscreen. Windscreen. Um, I know. They. I mean, I, and I love the differences. Like, um, there's so many names for the bathroom in Britain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> The Lude, the WC, I mean, the, oh, yeah. there's another one I can't think of, but there's so many different names. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, of course, if you innocently get it wrong, the readers are happily going along till that point, and they go, what? Yeah. Oh, 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 maybe they get an explanation, maybe they don't. Um, but it's always interesting when you're a kid reading a British book, say, and you come across those things. You think, what exactly here? Um, ideally, you know, your mom or dad says, oh, what that means is this here. Well, it's funny because I was I was reading British books and watching British shows. So I could see, because I was watching the British shows, what the things are that they're referring to in the books. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I got confused sometimes. Like I, I, I'm like, why do they call a trunk a boot? And my dad goes, <laughs> I don't know. You'd have to ask a British person. <laughs> yeah. Another area which I can only guess at, translations. Uh, you know, you get, uh, I don't know, German, Japanese translation of a book you've written, and you flip through it, and you think, how come it's so much thicker? Uh, than the American edition. Uh, and if it's British, I think, well, it's because they put an extra U in cut words like color and honor 
No, that wouldn't explain how come it's this much thicker. Um, but German, you know, you think, well, maybe they just, maybe German words are a lot longer than American words, English language words. But uh, there I kind of have to just shrug and hope for the best because uh, I don't speak German or French or what have you. I wanted to um, ask you a couple of things. One is um, you wrote a, a book that became part of the Pirates of the Caribbean. How did, what, how did that come about? Uh, yeah, um, a book of mine called On Stranger Tides was a fantasy set in the Caribbean in 1718 and involved Blackbeard the Pirate and Voodoo and the Fountain of Youth and sort of mixing Raphael Sabatini with uh, Lovecraft, say. And then when Disney made the first Pirates movie in about, I don't know, 2000, um, they said, Powers, if, we, if this becomes a series, if we make a number of these Pirates of the Caribbean movies, for the fourth one, we would like to buy the rights to your book on Stranger Tides. And I thought, cool, great idea. And so my wife and I made sure to see the next two pirate movies on the first day of release to add our little votes to their popularity. And, um, you know, go, come on, make a fourth movie, make a fourth movie. And then... They did. We, you know... <laughs> then they finally did, and uh, they used very little of my book. I mean, they had Blackbeard and Fountain of Youth and Oceans, um, but that was okay with me. They they could hardly have used a lot of my book since their movie is the fourth installment of a series with ongoing characters and plot concerns, um, but I was just happy they kept the title and and paid me. Uh, yeah, and we did. And yeah, that probably and we did go. Me, you know, trip on a cruise or on a vacation to Europe or. <laughs> it yeah, it paid off our house. Um, oh, there, that's good. <laughs> and we got to go watch him filming one evening, and uh, got to chat with Johnny Depp briefly. Uh, talked about Hunter Thompson and Fatty Arbuckle. Yeah, and and then they were all very busy, so we sort of snuck away. Uh, They were actually filming at the Universal Studios lot, which I thought was just a tourist attraction these days, but apparently it's still a working... No, they still shoot. Yeah. They still shoot Yeah, on the way back to our car, we got to sneak up to the Psycho House and stand on Norman Bates' porch, which ordinarily you're not allowed to do. Uh, and it's a, and I, I because of murder she wrote I keep telling my it's a facade it's not real you can't go in. <laughs> <laughs> you know we didn't walk around to the back. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, uh, then, in uh, murder she wrote they made it a real place that it was haunted and it was real and all this other stuff and all these people that were my friends that knew I worked at Universal said. Sherry, were you there? Did you see? I go. It's a facade. It only has. It has like. It's only got like three sides. There's no back. Um, 
<laughs> There's no running water. There's no stairs. Wow. <laughs> oh, that must have been fun working there. Oh, yeah. I love uh, it. I, that was my first yeah. real job. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah I worked uh, in crowd control, and then I was um, I worked on the bionic testing center, which shows my age, and then I worked <laughs> as the tour guide in very, very oh, short right. Three or four seasons, very very short period. Ah, yeah, I uh, I'm always impressed with D.W. Griffith, who would build not just a facade, but a whole damn like the Pharaoh's castle for uh, Ten Commandments. And mm-hmm. uh, in fact, these days archaeologists are are up there around those. Uh, what is it? I forget the area uh, north of Santa Barbara. And they're excavating the set of Ten Commandments mm-hmm. uh, because Griffith, uh, when the movie was Built done, uh, yeah, he dug a huge trench and pushed the whole set in. In fact, uh, that's the basis of um, – smooth segue here. That's the basis of uh, – Forced Perspectives, which is coming out, uh, which is out in paperback now, as a matter of fact. Uh, I've said that there was actually another reason why Griffith felt he had to bury the Ten Commandments set. But, uh, no, actually, that wasn't Griffith. That was uh, Cecil B. DeMille. Both of them (laughs) built epic sets, yeah. Uh, Yeah. Like, I guess the set for Griffith's Intolerance was actually still standing on Sunset Boulevard as late as the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Um, and the barn from, I forgot what the name of the movie, but oh, that's the Lasky, museum. Yeah, the Lasky uh, Famous Players Barn. Yeah. Uh, or was it Goldman? Uh, Goldman. Anyway, yeah, that's at the Hollywood Museum now up uh, Highland. They didn't know what a set was, really. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I do love Hollywood history. Oh, it's encompassable. It's only about 120 years. You you can grasp yeah. it. But if yeah. you're in London, every third house you pass has a blue disc on the wall saying, you know, Byron lived here. Uh, uh, <laughs> Jane Austen. <laughs> yeah, Sam, Samuel Johnson was born here. And you just think, Even this is just character. Sherlock Holmes, has a, Sherlock Holmes has a disc, and it's, he's not real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, you're just overwhelmed by, like, a thousand years of history there. In fact, we were in, yeah. we were in uh, Jerusalem a few years ago, and there it's just a dump truck of culture shock. Uh, there's so much history going back so far at every turn you know uh there's the garden of gethsemane oh my god and then they turn around yeah well never mind that look over here here's where uh you know pontius Pilate washed his hands ah and it's just it's just overwhelming yeah it well yeah (laughs) or any place like ancient egypt's even bigger and has more well Um, yes right goes back a good deal further yeah uh, yeah. But L.A. is in um, L.A. you can comprehend. Well, L.A. knocks down its own history. It's like, 
there is a very little history in L.A. because they keep not bulldozing it and getting rid of it. I, don't well, get true, me started true. on Los Angeles. It gets oh. me angry. I'm a native oh, and I, I hate it. it. <laughs> yeah. I don't hate L.A. Think... I love L.A. I just hate what they do. They knock oh, down Charlie Chaplin's studio. They knock down uh, Pia's Adora uh, Brown tore down Derby. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Brown Derby. Piazzadora tore down Pickfair. I know. Uh, uh, Aaron yeah, Spelling the Brown knocked Derby. down Charlie Chaplin's studio to build a monstrosity. You know. Uh, um, on on La Brea. No, this was in uh, Bel Air. Ah, okay. Yeah, the, Not, the La Brea. It, 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 there's was two studios. There was the. Uh, First studio where he did like the Great Dictator and all his really great films that was up yeah. in Bel Air, and then there ah. was the second studio where he did his early work um, when he broke off from the other studios and he started doing like the um, the cha- the Champ and and things like that. Uh, that's still there. Because they made an historic monument, but the house—it was part of a—it was a compound. It was a house and a studio, and it was his house. Yeah, the, yeah. And they knocked yeah, it LA down. Yeah, LA is very careless, careless about its history. Um, there's corners, luckily. You can stand on certain places and say, "Look, there is exactly unchanged something or other." You can stand at the top of uh, Ivar and look downhill and it's exactly the opening scene of Sunset Boulevard. Um, you can say, look, there's William Holden's window. Um, but yeah, they're, they're very careless. Uh, I wrote a book set in Las Vegas and, uh, I, it was published in 1992 and we went there and, you know, uh, I've described it very thoroughly it's all gone now. That, oh, that yeah. book is everything. now a historical novel because <laughs> everything I yeah. talked about, they tore down. Uh, to be honest, what they did, it, they made uh, Las Vegas Disneyland and all the great stuff like the Sands and, uh, and all the places that were wonderful, they got rid of. Yeah, yeah. They um, in fact, Las Vegas really exists because of Bugsy Siegel yeah. uh, who built well, the Flamingo. There. The Flamingo's still there. Well, not exactly. Well, not the original. Uh, I think maybe one room of the original Flamingo's still there, but there's still a Flamingo. <laughs> well, we, we went there and uh, the original was there and uh, I talked to a uh, lady in charge and said, can we see Siegel's suite? on the th- third floor, penthouse on the third floor. Uh, I, I'm writing a book. Come on, come on. And uh, she says, I'll get somebody from engineering. And luckily it wasn't occupied. And he unlocked the door and let us look through the suite. And he pointed out a linen closet where if you took a shelf out, it exposed a ladder, which led down to the basement where Siegel always kept a car gassed and ready. And a get tunnel the hell out. that... Yeah, and um, I went around the back. We walked all over the whole building, of course, and I went around the back, and there was a 
water faucet inset in a niche in the wall, and the far section of that niche was still the original pistachio green that the building had been painted right from 1946. And it was cracked, so I busted a piece off. I mean, nobody's ever going to look. They'd have to get on their knees the way I did to see the back of that alcove. So I busted a piece off and took it home and framed it, and people think it's a relief map of Oregon. Um, (laughs) And I was feeling guilty about it, but then six months later, they tore the whole damn building down. I told you, vandals. Uh, that's that's a core part of LA or of Las Vegas history. Mm. Who cares? You know, we can put up a whole extra wing of the casino. Yeah, I know. But they just uh, I I get really upset. I don't I don't like uh, uh, American has no sense of history. No, really, very little. Um, on the East Coast, it's better. If you wander around Boston, they've got you know things they know they better not tear down. <laughs> yeah, but it's just it's it, and Boston is such a set city. That's different because that yeah. part of the reason people go to Boston is to see the North Church and to see the different right, places. Exactly. That, you know the uh, um, historical th- that's graves. That's different. Yeah. Like it's like uh, Providence. There's parts of Providence that are brand new, and oh, yeah. there's part of Providence that's full of history that they won't touch, or Salem, or something like that. Right. Those yeah, are, we've, those we've are walked... why people go there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've we've walked all over Providence because I'm an absolute Lovecraft fan, and you know, uh, there, there's where he was born. Here's where he would uh, the cemetery he hung out in. Uh, here's the house he wrote about. Uh, we even pulled up some ivy from the yard of the shunned house and took it home but it didn't it didn't grow which probably lucky i mean you don't really want lovecraft ivy growing in your yard yeah i'm thinking about that uh-uh um okay we're coming to the end um first i would like to ask you about uh you're a judge for the writers of the future is that are you going to be in the current one or is that was in the past I am totally current. I've been a current judge since I think I think 1986. Uh every quarter I in fact I've, just before this phone call I was reading uh the current uh four quarterly winners uh who I guess will be announced later this year. Um but yeah, I've I've been uh doing it for a long time and steadily and it's real fun because i get to read the first efforts of writers who in the years since have become real prominent and i can think ha i read their work before anybody else did yeah nearly except a couple of other judges (laughs) uh but yeah i'm real I, i it's fun to be a part of it because it is such a, uh, a nursery for the the writers who are just a, just now appearing and who reliably will be very prominent in years to come. Well, that's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, it's a lot um, of fun. And are you going to the um, 
I don't. Is is that in December or September or is it next? My year? impression no, is October, but I forget. Uh, I some some months moved. in the future still. It's it's moved, but, so I don't remember. Yeah, but yeah, we'll uh, definitely be there. In fact, I've got my calendar here. I've probably got it written down. Um, yeah, we'll, we we always make it to the awards event. It's always a lot of fun. Uh, okay, I show it in October. Um, uh, and um, we're, we're, I'm sorry, we got to wrap up. Um, could you give us your if you have any like um, cyber or virtual events? Also, um, any social media or a website that you have? Not a lot. I'm kind of a digital immigrant rather than a digital native. Um, but uh, no, I don't. I don't think I have any virtual things or even in-person things coming up anytime soon. Uh, the Writers of the Future thing will probably be the soonest. And I've got a Facebook page just because my publisher said, "Powers, we're setting up a Facebook page for you. Participate." Oh, okay. <laughs> so I put up pictures of our dogs, um, and. And there's a website which is theworksoftimpowers.com, I believe. And a friend of mine in Canada maintains it. I should send him events. I don't. I, and, and I should let him know when, like, a new book is coming out, for example, ha, which I never remember to do. As far as having an online footprint, I'm a very faint footprint. I really am careless about having an internet presence and uh, especially about self-promotion. I always think self-promotion is vulgar. Yeah, I always just tell myself something that Eric Flint said once, which is if you want to promote a book you've written, write another book. <laughs> yeah, I, it means I don't have to scramble to, I don't know, solicit book signings or guest blogs or or any of those other embarrassing things. Okay. Uh, well, <laughs> I want to I want to thank you for taking the time to come on my show. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you. It's been fun. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry. Uh-huh.